Hello, and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, Claudia Hammond talks with the winners of this year's Brain Prize about the neuroscience of our brain's reward systems. Our sense of reward motivates us and is essential for survival. So when the system malfunctions, it can lead to big problems. Ray Dolan, Wolfram Schultz, and Peter Diane discuss their groundbreaking research and what it means for our understanding of human behavior. Hello, everybody. It's um, lovely to be here tonight and lovely to be here um, with three amazing prize winners. We're in front of an audience for a unique insight into the secrets of something fundamental to our survival, the brain's reward center. It's one of the most crucial biological mechanisms ever to have evolved. It ensures that we get what we need, like food, by influencing the pleasure we get from it and the hundreds of decisions we make every day about what we'll do, what feels good and what doesn't. Now, there are three people in particular who've transformed our understanding of the brain's reward system. And earlier this year, Peter Dayen, Ray Dolan, and Wolfram Schultz won the world's biggest prize for neuroscience, the Brain Prize awarded by the Lundbeck Foundation. Their prize for decades of remarkable work brings with it a million euros, so a nice reward for them. The trio's discoveries have revolutionized our understanding of how our brain's reward system can motivate us, give us the best chance in life, and in turn, influence the way we learn. But as we'll hear, it can also go wrong, playing a role in problems such as obesity, gambling, and addiction. And we're very lucky to have all three of them here tonight. And before I chat to them in detail, let's hear briefly from each of them to get a sense of the part they played. First up is Wolfram Schultz, a professor of neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. And like all our guests tonight, he has won so many awards and honours that if I were to list them all, it would fill the whole programme, so I won't. But please welcome Wolfram Schultz. So if you could give us a brief introduction to your, your work now. Uh, I think we uh, um, started many years ago to look uh, at a particular brain structure that we thought was involved in movement, and we couldn't find any uh, indication that that was actually the case. And we work in animals, and if you want to have an animal do a movement, you have to give them something, like a drop of liquid or a piece of apple or so, which for the animal is a reward for having done a movement. And uh, what we found was, by careful inspection of the data, that uh, the neurons in this part of the brain, called the dopamine neurons, were suddenly responding to receiving this drop of liquid and, the f and this piece of food or whatever it is. So we had to change our ideas from movement to reward. And at the time, the definition of reward was not terribly scientific. We started out with the idea that everybody thinks a reward is a bonus you get when you've done something extraordinarily well, or you think a reward is something that makes you happy, but we cannot look in, in monkeys uh, what makes them happy. We don't really know what, what a monkey looks like when he's happy. Of course, we think we do. <laughs> we, we, we think very much, though. They're very similar to humans, but uh, not in a scientific way. So um, we had to redefine reward in a scientific way, and uh, we think that reward is what you actually need in order to live. We need um, carbohydrates, proteins, um, vitamins, water or so, and we need all of these things, and we usually do an effort to do that, to, to get it, 
And, um, and I think this is the definition of what a reward is. We need it for survival. We need to live. We also need to mate. So mating partners, I'm sorry, it sounds awful, um, are, have a rewarding function, right? We go after the ladies or after the lads or something. And that is we need to mate. We need to reproduce. Otherwise, we're done in one generation. The genes will disappear, right? This is what drives us, what drives our behavior. And then the function of these rewards is not only to drive that behavior, but also to make us learn. We see new stimuli, we learn that they are involved, um, associated with rewards. They predict When you go through the street and you see a very funny, fancy sign with some flowers on, on, so on the house, you realize this is a pub, right? Nobody told you that in the beginning. You realize that after a while, this is a pub. You go in, you drink your beer, you meet your friends, right? The thing that does this learning to you is called a reward prediction error. Oh, that's a terrible word. You're not getting a reward because you're making an error. The, the definition of a reward prediction error in scientific ways is the difference between what you're getting and what, you are, what is predicted um, that you're going to get. And this so-called prediction error drives you to getting more rewards and to avoiding bad rewards, right? So can we do a little experiment here? Sure. Right. Welcome, Claudia, to the laboratory. Thank right. you. Okay, this is a 20-pound note, right? It says Bank of England. I didn't make it. It's made by the Bank of England, right? I'm a scientist. I don't make money, right? I, I, just, <laughs> I, just, I just use printers for all kinds of things, but I, 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 I'm not bold enough to do this, right? So, okay, here's 20 pounds, real 20 pounds. You can use them. You can buy yourself a bunch of coffees or whatever. So, how would you like to receive 20 pounds in one situation, okay? I'm telling you, I'm going to give you 10 pounds, right? L lovely. Actually, I'm going to give you 20 pounds. How even do you better. feel about the 20 pounds? Fantastic. That's Is that even okay? okay? Yeah, I'm very pleased. Well, well, that's good. Okay. You seem cool. to have kept it, but yeah. Cool. No, no. <laughs> I noticed. Uh, cool. Well, we'll see. And uh, now I'm telling you you're getting 30 pounds, right? Oh, even better. Cool. I'm only giving you 20 pounds. How do you feel? Oh, a bit cheated, because you said I was getting 30, and now yeah. it's down to 20, so that's yeah. not so good. It's all. It's all you get, 20 pounds, right? That's the prediction error. Watch what I did. Remember what I did to Claudia, really? I'm, 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 I was, in the beginning, I was very nice. I told her she's going to get 10 pounds, and I gave her 20 pounds. She was really happy. You can see that, right? This is called a positive reward prediction error. The reward she's getting is 20 pounds, minus the reward that were predicted were 10 pounds. She is a positive 20 pounds reward prediction error. And that's what drives you. You're going to come more and more to get, get these 20 pounds, right? With the 30 pounds thing, that was a bad trick, right, admittedly. Yeah. Um, I, I told you you're getting 30, but you were getting 20. So it's 20 pounds getting minus 30 pounds predicted. It's minus 10 pounds. That's called a negative reward prediction error. So right? it's all the and same money and the same amounts, but one felt like a con. The same amount and one felt at like the a end, bonus. right. In the second case, you were disappointed, right? You were starting to cry on my shoulder. Everything was really bad. <laughs> Something right? like that. Okay, that's the reward prediction error. So what it does to you is you want to have this enthusiasm when you get. 10 pounds more than you thought, and you're going to go after the pub that has a beer that's better than you thought it was, and uh, you're not going to, into the pub that has a beer that's worse than what you thought. You will avoid a situation where somebody tells you 30 pounds, a stupid, mean guy like me, and then you only get the 20 pounds, right? That's a reward prediction error, okay? That's what we did, what we found in the brain. The neurons are doing this, and this is a fantastic 
what we call a teaching signal to teach you where to go and get your reward and where not to go to avoid the disappointment. Thank you for that. So after these discoveries that, that Wolfram made, Peter Dayan, who's Professor of Computational Neuroscience at University College London, spotted an opportunity to take the work further <coughs> by looking at how our behaviour in the future is affected by whether we did get the pleasure we hoped for the previous time. Please welcome Peter Dayan. Thank you very much indeed. So, um, as, as in this uh, tableau between Wolfram and uh, Claudia, one of the things you saw is that uh, when Wolfram said to Claudia, here's 30 pounds, she was very excited by the prospect of that 30 pounds. So it turns out that the signals in the brain that Wolfram was recording not only respond to the prediction error at the time of the outcome, so when, the, when either Claudia gets at 20 pounds and it's good, better than 30 or less than 10, but also when the first time that Wolfram was actually offering it in the first place too. And so that signal, it turns out that the nature of that prediction error signal, this reward prediction error signal, uh, also contains this prediction associated with the future. So you're not only seeing what happens at the error when it comes, but also at the time that it's being presented as an opportunity in the first place. And the importance of that is that if Claudia wanted to try and persuade Wolfram more frequently to offer him th her 30 pounds rather than 10 pounds, she would like to do things associated with that original offer, assuming that the Wolfram actually then pays up her. Like the, yes, the he hasn't so he far. I should point out that the money seems to have gone back away into his wallet. But, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so it turns out that this particular signal that we see is not only good for teaching at the end, at the end point of that learning, but it's also good for changing the behavior, that, so, so for Claudia to help change Wolfram behavior so that in fact he, uh, he both uh, offers more 30 pounds and less 10 pounds. So why is this important? It's important because we are constantly having to make choices where we don't find out rewards immediately, but rather we have to do a whole sequence of things. So you know, graduate students, you know, they start off as a, a university and then only you know, four, four or five years later they get their PhDs. Often in many, or in a game of chess, you might have to make many moves before you win or lose. And so frequently we're having to make decisions which depend on um, now on rewards that come much later. And it turns out that this signal that uh, Wolfram talks about is just absolutely perfect for doing that. And so what we did was to link a body of theory that came from artificial intelligence originally um, and then got embodied into neuroscience through this work. And so we could then understand how it is that this signal you can see in the, in the brain links to essentially 100 years' worth of work in psychology of how it is that animals actually learn in the face of rewards and punishments and then link to these computational theories that are the same thing you see in economics and operations research and statistics. So that gives us a way of essentially linking many different levels of understanding together. And so that then was a, a basis for a very a large wealth of experiments that were done by us and many other people as well that really elucidated the nature of this signal. Now, all our guests we have tonight have worked together at different times, so, that, so they all know each other very well. And finally, we have Professor Ray Dolan, who's a neuropsychiatrist, and he's played a major role in the expansion of brain imaging here. And today, he's director of the Max Planck UCL Centre for Computational Psychiatry and Ageing here in London. Please welcome Ray Dolan. So just picking up on what's been said, um, Wolfram carried out a very nice experiment with you, and I'm interested in the impact of reward prediction errors in terms of human cognition, uh, but also subjective human experience. And Wolfram's experiment was a very nice one, showing you that actually a positive reward prediction error made you feel slightly better. And one of the things we've been trying to do, and doing uh, particularly with Peter, is asking whether we can model momentary variation in people's subjective states of happiness. And like was demonstrated here with you, we've shown that 
positive predictioners are associated with happiness. And the positive predictioner you've had just recently is more important than the one you've had uh, sometime in the past. But what you've also heard here is that dopamine is very important in reporting this predictioner signal. And we've been interested in its implications for vast areas of human cognition, but I've got to do with two. One is how well you learn, and the second one is your appetite for risk, both important aspects of behavior. So taking how well you learn, um, how can you do this experimentally in humans? Well, there are a number of ways, but the way we've approached the problem is taking an experiment of nature, namely the fact that from the age of 20 onwards, you're losing your dopamine function, on average about 10% per decade. If this goes to extreme, you will develop Parkinson's disease, but most people do not develop Parkinson's disease, but they do lose their dopamine. Um, so we've asked, using experiments that we've carried out with the public using smartphone platforms, we give them an, um, a simple learning task, for example, or a gambling task, and what we've shown is, in the first instance, that people learn less well as they get older. And in fact, if we then try to boost their dopamine by giving them a drug that enhances dopamine function, they learn as good as young people. And we can look with brain imaging at the signal that mediates this effect in the brain. And what we can show is that as you get older, your expression of this predictioner signal is impoverished to some degree. And those in whom it is most impoverished learn less well, and they benefit most from this intervention of giving L-DOPA. So the second area, which is the one we've done mainly with the telephone platform, is we ask, has, does people's appetite for risk change as they get older? And we do simple experiments where we give a safe option, say five pound for sure, or a gamble, which would be 50% chance, say, of 12 pounds or no pound, or zero. And we do the same thing for losses. And what we show is that there's a selective decrease in people's appetite for risk as they get older. And this seems to parallel what we know is the age-related decline in dopamine. Um, and that is advantageous because within the gambling type of situation, people do less well in terms of winning money uh, than young people. And this probably has implications as you get older in terms of being risk-averse for uh, <coughs> benefits that you might reap by having an appetite for risk. So is it bad to be more risk-averse then? Uh, yeah. Um, you have to have exactly the right uh, amount of risk-aversion. Um, Wolfram played an experiment with me beforehand and he thought I was becoming very risk-averse, and I know this from my own behavior. As I've got older, I do things, say, when I ski, um, or I did things when I was 20 that I would not dare do now. You skied off cliff edges <laughs> yeah. and you didn't before. Well, we've got an experiment that uh, Wolfram is going to have a go at now with the um, audience. If um, those of you who, who've got a phone handy could go to uh, menti.com, um, then that would be uh, marvellous. And Wolfram is going to um, give you some options. He's going to pose a question to you, and then you can answer by make, marking it on your phones. The answers will come up. Um, oh, there's something up there already. So we haven't asked the question yet. Any explanation? <laughs> Go back. We haven't asked the question. Right. You can't answer just, it yet. Just to make sure everything is clear. Yes. Okay, you have a choice between getting 
one, pound, one penny or nine pennies with equal chance, or five pennies for sure. So you have just one, one of these two options to choose. You go on the right-hand side, you're going to get five pennies. You go on the left side, you're getting either one penny or nine penny. You're actually not going to get it. I keep it in my pocket. <laughs> right? Seems to be a habit, that. Yeah. But, but so you're, you're voting now. Uh, you're voting what you want. We are now at almost 50-50. Okay. So on the... Okay. On the right are the chicken, on the left are the old people. <laughs> right. You're trying to sway it now. <laughs> okay. Has everybody had a chance to vote who'd like to vote? Mm -hmm. Yes. Excellent. Now okay. Wolfram has a second question. We're doing the same thing now. The same, you, you get used to it, but now the stakes are a little higher. <laughs> You're either getting one million or nine million. <laughs> Or you're getting five million. Again, I keep it in my pocket, right? <laughs> and you keep voting. See, of course, the left one is a risk again, the right one is a certain. So with this one, people have a choice between gambling on whether they might get one million or nine million or getting five million for certain. And right. uh, interestingly, it was 50-50 sort of last time, and this time 85% of people would like the five million for certain. But I'm quite interested in that. Uh, it's about 16% now. The 16% of people who'd like to take the gamble. That's interesting, isn't it? Would you expect to see these answers, Wolfram? Um, I think we're always happy to see a few percentage do different than what, what you would think is doing. In fact, I asked that to students. I did the same thing with students in, in the student lectures. And I had uh, one, one particular young person who did the left one. And then I asked her, well, why do you do that? It's a little unusual. You see, you see what you did, right? The 15% is, is a little bit unusual compared to the 85%. And uh, she said, well, you know, um, I don't care for money. But if I had 9 million, it would really be cool. And, <laughs> and if I really want to do money... I want to get money, I can, I can have a, lot, a long life ahead of me, and there was, I think was a medical student. I can choose to do medicine where I earn a lot of money, but, but I don't need to do it if I have the nine million. If I, do, I only get the one million, that's okay too. Okay, right. Okay, so this is very typical. Can we interpret a little bit? Um, the, the first result was a little surprising. Many people would probably gamble for small stakes. That's called the peanuts effect in economics. The gambling is more attractive than the, the nine penny, than the five penny you're getting, right? Five penny, what the hell? I mean, it's not a lot of money. Often you find it on the street, right? When they come, right, this, this here. When you, the, the, this is the one, the penny is again on the screen here. When, when you gamble for these large amounts, I think if you can have five, five million pounds, you put in your pocket, you might as well be happy. Because if you choose to gamble and you get the one million, you probably won't forget that for the rest of your life. You, will, <laughs> you have the same thing that Claudia had when I, when I prom promised her 30 pounds and I gave her 20 pounds, a huge disappointment, but that will last for quite a while, maybe for the rest of your life, right? That's, that, all that goes into this decision between risky and safe um, outcomes. Thank you for that. Okay. So uh, can I ask Claudia, I mean... If, if now, in, in five years, when you turn 30, would you gamble less than you do now? He's smooth, isn't he? Yes. Would I gamble well, that's what less Ray, than I That's do what Ray now. predicts, right? Yes. So yes. maybe in five years, can you test Claudia and see if uh, she kind of performs differently? No, but when, 
we showed the first graphs, I thought maybe Peter could backwardly infer the average age of the audience. <laughs> I was thinking about that, actually. Were you thinking yes. about that? Yes. Um, could you, Peter? That's clever. <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is that uh, we'd like to do these things where you actually give money. So to do these hypothetical gambles are not... Uh, you know, because there was no oh, real no one's money. got anything to actually yeah. lose here because yeah. we're not going to take the money off them. Yes. And when you look at what's happening in the brain, Peter, can you... Can the brain anticipate when a reward is coming? I mean, can, can you see something going on there? Exactly. So this is exactly the scene we were talking about. When, so when Wolfram offered you that £30, there would have been a signal at that time. When, 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 when he gave you the choice between £1 million and £9 million, then um, you have a signal which is, roughly speaking, associated with that somewhere in the, me, in the middle. Now, exactly where in the middle then relates to the risk processing that, that right. Wolfram and right. Ray have both talked about. And that signal is, a signal, is, a, is the prediction. And there are signals which then uh, maintain this prediction until the time that you get the outcome. And that's how... That, well, needed to generate that prediction error. And how far in the future can that work? I mean, if you, if you promise somebody, I don't know, some chocolate immediately, I'm guessing you, you see a result, you, you see something happen there. What if you promise they can have some chocolate tomorrow or next week? So that's very interesting. So the, um, if you look at the, the sort of experiments that Wolfram was doing, there the timescales are very short. And then you can see the, the, the fact that you get this, um, that the precise nature of the signal depends on that short time. If you make that time longer, then Wolfram has also shown that the, that the nature of the signal at the time when the outcome comes gets to be different because the animals can't do this very uh, high-quality timing. In fact, we're also not so good at doing timing. There's a lot of work on interval timing. However, uh, you could still be in this state of, 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 uh, of predict. So humans, in particular, can, can essentially build a little model of the world. And they can say, OK, well, now I have this ex expectation, which can then span much longer periods than just the way you talk about. So we could still have an expectation that you're going to get this gamble, you're going to get this, this reward at some later time. However, people have preference for early resolution of uncertainty. So, for instance, I offer you this, offer this gamble, but maybe I say, um, uh, you're only going to find out in two weeks whether or not you won. So I, I, I flip the coin now. I know whether you've won or not, but you don't know whether you've won. And I say, how much are you willing to pay me now in order that I reveal to you whether or not you've won, even though you're not going to get the money for, for, for two weeks' time? And people have this preference for early resolution of uncertainty because they, then they don't want to necessarily be in this state of, of, of uncertainty. So there are lots of interesting things happen as you, when you make timing um, variable or when timing actually matters. And do you think, well, from the, the reward system is much more complex than we tend to think? I mean, it, it sounds as if it involves so many different things. Yeah, well, reward involves a lot of different things. I mean, the prediction error is one of the things we've talked about. And, uh, and then uh, I just want to backtrack on this uh, gamble that we just showed um, for the prediction error, right? Um, we, we started with a gamble when, risk, when, when, um, when Ray said um, the risk attitude changes with aging and depending on dopamine. And uh, so how does it relate to a prediction error? I'll come back to your question in a second, right? Um, how does it relate to, to dopamine? And the thing is, of course, when you choose the gamble, right? The, the, as Peter said, the one and nine penny um, gamble, the mean is five pennies, right? So, but you're never get, going to get the five pennies. When, when you choose the gamble and you get the outcome, you get the nine pennies, then you have a four penny positive prediction error, right? You're getting four pennies more than were predicted by the, by the mean. When you get the one penny, you have a minus four penny negative prediction error, right? If you play the gamble a hundred times, you'll probably get on average the total of, of 50 pennies, right? Because it's 100 times 50. 100 times 5. Pounds. Maybe 500 or something like that. Right? We have computers for this. <laughs> right? Okay. So... So when you are risk averse, you may actually have a um, battle between your 
positive risk, the pleasure you're getting from positive risk prediction error and the disappointment you're getting from the negative prediction error, right? So if you really hate these negative prediction errors, you will not gamble because you're afraid in 50% of chance you're getting a negative prediction error, right? So all this goes back to this prediction error thing, right? So the prediction error actually, as, as arcane and artificial it sounds, is a very fundamental pro, uh, component for reward. But that's only when it comes to the input, right? You're getting the reward, it's in the outside world, you're going and get it, but now what do you do? You have to do a choice, right? What you just did is part of the reward system. It translates at the end in an economic choice. And now you have choice mechanisms in which you weigh the two options and then you wait a while until you become convinced that one option is better than the other and there are neuronal models. There are models for that. There are neuronal activity that show exactly this gradually uh, maturing activity drawing a particular decision threshold, either for, go for one option or the other option. And now you see the richness of the uh, brain process that are involved in transforming from the, the, make the transformation from the reward input from the outside world into this prediction error computation which requires um, this cognitive prediction into then making the final choice. And then, of course, when you have the choice, you're getting your prediction errors, and then it feeds back on the next uh, prediction and then the next decision, right? So this shows a bit of complexity, and you have um, ha maybe half a dozen brain structures that are involved in that, and the different brain structures have different functions. In this. Some are more decision-making, and the dopamine are more on the reward input detection. Now, Ray, we, we have talked a bit about dopamine already, but I want to ask you some more about that. I mean, sometimes dopamine is, is referred to as the, the happy drug, and people will talk about these dopamine spikes, but is it really as, as simple as that? What, what does dopamine actually make us feel? So a lot of the discussion has been around reward prediction error, but dopamine has, we think, other functions, and um, one relates perhaps to mood, and it's of interest that most drugs of abuse putting aside the opiates, but amphetamine, cocaine, and drugs like that, have a hedonic component. People take them because they make them feel better. So there is a, a reward effect that is due to just boosting dopamine that is probably unrelated to reward prediction error. One area that we've studied is, is looking at how boosting dopamine increases the attractiveness of potential rewards. And so the example I gave you of the gamble of the choice between a certain and a gamble amount. If we boost dopamine, this is not a reward prediction error effect, this is just a boosting probably of tonic rather than phasic dopamine. Um, this increases the attractiveness of a gamble. So if we have this same experiment repeated here and we gave everybody coming into this hole uh, a drug that made your dopamine a little higher, when you gave that initial option, I suspect we would see a greater uh, take-up of the gamble option. So that, that, that's one effect. Now, that becomes important in medicine. So if you take uh, a situation where dopaminergic drugs are used to treat disease, Parkinson's disease being the classical one, it's known that a proportion of patients who are taking dopaminergic-boosting drugs develop an appetite for risk behavior that can be very, very extreme. And the most famous examples or infamous examples of this are where people with Parkinson's disease will gamble vast amounts, their whole pension even, often surreptitiously, so their family may not know about it. They will often steal to sustain their gamble. And this is due to an effect of dopamine. And we think it's because dopamine just increases 
we call it the Pavlovian attraction of a potential reward. It's just the magnetic pull that a potential outcome can have. And this is probably a different effect than the reward prediction error. Well, it could, it could actually influence the dopamine that's released from the prediction error response. And so is it common enough for people with Parkinson's disease who are, who are having uh, treatment to develop gambling problems that, I mean, would doctors warn people about it when they prescribe certain medications? Well, historically, the, the classical treatment for Parkinson's disease was L-DOPA, which was a drug that is the precursor of dopamine in the brain. And then with sort of developments in pharmacology in the 80s and 90s, people developed drugs that directly acted on the dopaminergic receptors. And some of those classes of drugs, when they were introduced first, had this effect of inducing very severe gambling behavior and other types of risk behavior as well. Um, and initially that was not known uh, but through experience, people have uh, recognized this. Now, it would be a standard part of the treatment protocol to warn people, to warn their relatives, that such drugs may induce this. This is, by the way, a subject now of multiple class actions based upon whether the pharmaceutical industry provided enough forewarning in relation to uh, these patients' problems. Peter, it almost sounds as if uh, dopamine it works as this little kind of you know devil in our brains that's making us do things we don't necessarily want to do. You know, is it is it controlling us? It, it sounds bad in a way. So this comes back to the so it's, there's a good side and a bad side, right? So the good side, in, in some sense, is what Wolfram was talking about, where um, where it, it helps you control the actions you do because you get reward for doing those actions. You'd like to do them again, and then the um, the bad side then relates to what uh, Ray was talking about, which is where these what, what he called Pavlovian actions. The idea that there are essentially some actions which come just because you make a prediction. So, for instance, those of you who might go on a diet, if you get you know, too close to the cream bun store, then you find yourself uh, eating the cream buns no matter what, and so. <laughs> You could then plan to a, 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 a way to work, for instance, that takes a long day to so you don't get tempted by the cream buns. So that attraction to the cream bun store itself is a is a, is one of the sorts of things that can happen through this through the the direct action of value. This is the Pavlovian mechanism that, that Ray was talking about. So indeed, there are these good sides and bad sides. And of course, evolutionarily, these were good, right? So it's normally a good idea to approach your sources of food and engage with them and, and avoid your sources of punishment and so forth. And so, but in an, in the modern society, we're not so well adapted for that. And so, cream bun stores didn't exist. In the, in the savannas. And yet, Ray, only 1% of neurons in the brain use dopamine. That seems really surprising because it seems like it's having such an effect. Yeah. Um, well, dopamine is one of a class of drugs called, or class of neurotransmitters called neuromodulatory agents. And there are other ones. There are noradrenaline, acetylcholine. And these comprise neurons with that are relatively few compared to the sort of vast neuronal population of 100 billion, perhaps. Um, but they have very diffuse effects. So these agents, once they're released, influence the action of other neurotransmitters. So they're called neuromodulators. Um, so they're secreted in lots of different structures, and they influence the action within those structures. So they're kind of changing, you could think of it as, as a gain of a, um, a dial, for example. Well, while you were asking this question to Ray, I was using my computer to figure out that there are actually 10,000 times more neurons in the brain than dopamine neurons. See, that right? seems amazing. Yeah. Yes, so it's not 1%, it's 0.1 per mil. It's best, less than that, right? oh, I see. So it's these neurons spread widely. They have axons that contact 
uh, maybe 10,000 neurons and influence these neurons in an unspecific manner. And then these neurons are very specific and use this unspecific boosting action from dopamine to do their particular very well differentiated job. With that, you can explain that a few people have a very strong influence on a lot of people, right? A few neurons have a lot of influence on, on, on many other um, neurons that do their job. Peter, would it be fair to say there's still a lot we don't know about how dopamine works in the brain? Yes, a very large amount. And of course, that's why we're still employed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we hope. Um, Yes, as actually has been already talked about here, so there are many aspects of, for instance, the multiple timescales of action of dopamine, the, the, the way that dopaminergic reward systems interact with other reward systems in the brain. So the interaction between these different systems is something which we're, we're studying uh, heavily. And then also, as uh, Ray has pointed out, um, issues about psychiatry, so issues about how these systems can go wrong, obviously are very important as well to study. And you're modelling the kinds of decisions that we make and applying the logic of those decisions in the dopamine system to artificial intelligence. How does that work? So are you hoping to improve artificial intelligence by looking to see how the dopamine system works? Is it both ways around? It's both ways around. So the, the, in a sense, the very early days of this were some very early ideas that came from um, the very first ideas actually in artificial intelligence about how to play draft, so this, you know, checkers, a game of checkers, um, by Arthur Samuel in the 1950s. And that was around the time that mathematical psychologists were trying to um, build uh, formal characterizations of the way that animals learn in their, in their environments. So there's always been a very close link between the way that people have thought in the AI community, in the artificial intelligence community, with the way that people have thought actually in, in, the, in the other aspects of decision theory. And so there's been a really fruitful interaction between those, those two. And I think that and what you can see is that, those, that they're really feeding on each other. So the experiments we do are triggered by things that we can have discovered about the, about the experiments we do in humans are triggered by things that we discover in AI. The innovations in AI can then be, um, can then be um, triggered by things that, ways that people think about the, the way the brain is working too. And so that, the whole area has really advance very quickly because of this very close um, coupling between these two disciplines. And Ray, what you've done is to use brain imaging to try to um, understand a lot about the roots of, of human emotion and how that all fits in with the reward system. How much light can this throw on things like mental health problems? So. We think a lot. Um, and of course, we're at a stage in understanding the basis of something like depression, which is very primitive relative to understanding Parkinson's disease, um, simply because there's no neuropathology there, which there is in Parkinson's disease. You see cells have degenerated. So it's a change of function in, 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 in depression, um, and that makes it much more difficult to identify. So you have to have the technology that can do that, but you also have to have models that you can... Um, used to understand the behavior that uh, in depression. And one, say, aspect of depression is lack of motivation, for example. People do not feel motivated to do things. When they do things, they do it very, very slowly. The prospect of some reward later in the evening that might motivate you to get up and go there and seek it out, that's absent. Um, and so we've been thinking about it in terms of clearly dopamine, because dopamine interacts with all these things that I've said. Um, but it's much more complicated, because we've recently done an experiment which asked whether dopaminergic reward prediction errors that you've learned about are expressed in the brain in depression. And the answer is, uh, they seem normal. So now we're thinking that perhaps it's the way you set up or imagine those prediction errors. So 
Peter has alluded to different systems of control in the brain, a habitual versus a goal-directed. So it may be the interaction of dopamine with a goal-directed system where you have to plan future scenarios, imagine them, uh, that may be deficient. So we've been focusing much more on the what one might call the learned system, the habitual system. So it's complicated, but the work that's been done here has provided a way of actually parsing up the space in which you would conduct your inquiries and systematically rule out one issue as opposed to the other. But this is very, very important because mental health is a huge issue for society. And I think perhaps just on the other day, there was some report as to the economic cost, the number of days lost, and mental health far outstrips any other problem in society in terms of economic cost. So what would happen if you had somebody with depression and you gave them one of the drugs that increased, that made dopamine more available to the brain? Yeah, that's been done. It was done in the 50s. People used to treat people with depression with amphetamine, for example. Um, it didn't really work. It didn't work long term. But there are new drugs um, which have just come along which don't act, obviously, through dopamine. So one of the problems is if you give an antidepressant for some, uh, to treat depression, it usually takes about two weeks before it'll have an effect on average, which is a bit unsatisfactory because if you go along with a pain to a doctor who's treating you for pain, you expect that the drug will act pretty immediately. Um, but a class of drug called ketamine is now beginning to revolutionize the field. There's some very early studies which show that it has an immediate beneficial effect. Ketamine being an anesthetic agent, but if used in low doses, can lead to a dramatic improvement in depression. It does not appear to work through the dopaminergic system, as far as we know. One important thing is that there are many, and one of the issues that you discover when you do these sorts of studies is that there are many different sorts of depression. It's not a unitary disease. And so it could well be that uh, um, problems with dopamine characterize some aspects of, de of depression, but not other aspects of, de of depression. So one of the troubles in psychiatry, one of the things, in fact, that computational psychiatry is trying to address is trying to slice and dice in a different way. And then by using these sorts of studies, you can find out, well, maybe there are these, there, there, we can uh, understand divisions between different groups of patients and then therefore try and understand how you might go about treating it. Yeah, because if there are lots of different sorts of depression, then if you do a trial and you haven't split up all those different sorts, then it's whatever you get is only going to work for a few of them, which of course, of some people, which of course is, is what happens, exactly. isn't it? That things yes. work for some people and not others. But it does seem more, more and more often on the programme, we're talking about things where it seems that there might be completely different causes for different types of depression. And maybe it's not one condition at all that we're... Exactly. And so but, but, the, but the standard treatment for depression is still going through serotonin drugs rather yes. than dopamine drugs, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. I mean, so it, it shows there's just more than, than a, a reward disease or, or yeah. a motivational disease. Well, it's, it's sure, of course, it's a motivational disease, but there are multiple sources for deficits in motivation in, in, in brain systems, I think. And what about other sorts of mental health problems, Ray? What about um, the relationship between uh, dopamine and psychosis? That's been you know, a standard story again from <coughs> the 50s, um, based upon sort of an observation that drugs that block dopamine, neuroleptics is the class of drug, stop psychotic experiences. So if you're in an acute psychotic state, giving a neuroleptic that blocks dopamine. Of course, that has side effects in terms of making people amotivated, having a big effect upon their motor function. Uh, but it's still the mainstay of all treatments for psychosis remains 
um, antidopaminergic. And of course, you can say also in psychosis, particularly in the chronic phase, it is a disorder where there is a motivation and anhedonia. I have never, I've treated many patients with psychosis, have had them over a long period of time, and you cannot say about these patients that they are happy in the world, that they're motivated to do things. So dopamine is important there. How dopamine contributes to the unusual experiences of hearing voices, of feeling that you're subject of ex to external influence, false beliefs, is a very complicated tale. But again, one that we're trying to approach through computational psychiatry. And does that fit in with the reward system, though? Not in any clear-cut way, except that what's often referred to as the secondary deficits. So in other words, in, in addition to the very unusual experiences of hallucinations, delusions, patients with long-term psychosis have a motivation anhedonia. They don't get pleasure from their lives. They don't have much motivation to do things. And they're often referred to as the sort of secondary deficits, but in fact they become the primary deficits over time. And, and I that does relate, I think, to you. And I want to talk a bit more about this, uh, this issue of... Uh, levels of dopamine seem to drop as people age. Could you see a day where we took some sort of drug as we age to restore those levels to how they were when people were young? Would that, would that be a good thing? Well, that's um, obviously a, a, a sort of an ethical um, challenge. So the answer is, if, for example, I said there was a condition which you know, a high proportion of the population were subject to that made them walk um, much more slowly and made them out of breath very quickly and that this doctor had discovered a drug that could make them sort of just young and lively again, you'd say it's a no-brainer. I think we have a real issue when it comes to cognition. People feel a little bit held back by the notion that you can introduce cognitive enhancers. Personally, I would have no problem with... You know, if I was a, 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 um, a user and I felt my cognition was in decline and somebody said, well, this can restore you to how you were when you were 30, I would say, give it to me. Um, and I can't see why society couldn't have any other attitude. Because um, if, if you take an example of any other physical condition, people would say yes. Um, there are, this will be a huge issue for society because I think we've got to a stage where there are a number of agents out there which are likely to enhance your cognition, um, make you smarter as you get older, make you make better decisions. Um, so I, I would be all for it, personally. And Peter, when we talk about learning, I mean, if you think about something like learning and ageing, you might think, oh, yes, it, we know it gets harder to learn languages as, as you get older. But is it that kind of learning we mean when we're talking about reward? It seems slightly different. So actually, all sorts of learning are affected. In fact, these other neuromodulatory systems are also involved. The ones that, that, uh, that um, Ray mentioned, so like norepinephrine and, and acetylcholine, are also involved in learning, too. And they probably also have uh, interesting trajectories over, over, over ageing. One thing to say about um, uh, the effect of dopamine, actually, so one of the issues about it is exploration 
is something that you do by, you know, that's what you, you essentially, uh, one of the things you're trying to do, trying something new, like, like uh, raise skiing when he's young. And so in some sense, it makes sense to explore when you're young because you can then discover things. If you discover something, you can then exploit it for the rest of your life. Whereas if you, and, and so in a sense, exploration is something... you can still discover something good at 60. You can, but then you only have a shorter time when you have yeah. a shorter time to enjoy True. it, right? So the, uh, um, it's worth a try. Depending yeah. on your needs, um, if you're going skiing. But the, uh, the, the, so, so there's a reason to adapt, for the system to adapt the amount of, for instance, exploration that it does. It actually could be a, an adaptive change as opposed to a non-adaptive change. But of course, the fact that lifetimes have gotten awful lot longer over recently means that therefore the, the, the nature of this decline may not be well adapted to our current, uh, the current decay. But yes, all sorts of learning change. And of course, um, you know, we, we also become more competent at learning. We're, 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 so there's a, there are other sorts of effects uh, increasing and decreasing our learning ability as we get older. So we'll Just picking up on something sorry. Peter said uh, in terms of exploration, that's good, but if the, if the world changes, you could remain stuck in your way. The things that were useful to explore right. and which you thought, I'm going to exploit this, may be sort of history by the time you're and 60 also, or 70. And there's also an effect, which is that um, in, a, in a society where you can learn by imitation, it actually might be good people for, for, for older people to try new things and they can discover, therefore the rest of society can discover how dangerous they are um, with a, <laughs> limiting, the, uh, <laughs> limiting the, uh, the net cost of years. So, so we should listen to our kids more. We should listen to our kids more, exactly. Yeah. We are sacrificing ourselves for our yeah. kids, as ever. Yes. Well, are there lessons, Wolfram, other than listening to our kids more, are there, are there lessons for everyday life from all this? Are there ways that we can learn from this to manipulate our own reward systems so could you make um, uh, junk food seem less rewarding and fruit and vegetables seem more rewarding somehow and trick yourself into desperately wanting those I know some people do but you know well, yes I think I think every <coughs> every sorry every piece of junk food um, has of course uh, the connotation that there is too much fat in it um, and uh, the, the connotation that it's cheap, so you can get an extra uh, piece of food uh, more, so you eat more than you want, but you can make them less attractive by uh, not packaging them up so much. So I have had a history in which I talked about food packaging, and then people got back to me, so I'm going to be very careful. I'm not propagating <laughs> any change to food packaging, but I say there is a factor of attractiveness to particular foods, uh, the, the problem is the big problem of obesity. I mean, why are people getting obese? Because the food is widely available, it's very cheap, this is what everybody wants. The point is now that there seem to be, since one year in Africa, more people being endangered by obesity than by hunger. It's very funny. And it had turned, because the, the food companies supplied what you would call junk food, which I would call cheap, nourishing food, which contains all the essentials you need. But of course, people were hungry. They knew they were hungry, so they were eating. And it's actually very health, well useful to be fat, to be obese. Because if next year there's a bad harvest, then all the people that have a weight like me will be dead in no time, like in two months or so. And everybody that's obese will survive half a year or even, even a year, and, uh, and they will be fine. So in evolution, obesity is uh, totally useful. In our modern society, it's a, it's a pain. And in the past, people were not obese because the food was difficult to get. You had to take your bicycle, you go in the rain to a grocery store where you have to wait in line, mostly outside in the rain, and then somebody would hand you over half a kilogram of rice because they ran out of rice, and then you get another kilogram, you put it in your backpack, 
and then you had to cycle home, and then maybe it was raining again. You wouldn't do that um, too often. Whereas now, we just go to the supermarket, and we pack the trunk of our car full of food. We put it in the fridge. And once it's in the fridge, we see it every day, and then we eat as much as we can, right? And then we're not, we not programmed to control ourselves enough when we see that food um, to, to not eat so much. Because in the past, the control came from the outside. It was more difficult to have so much food. You actually didn't even have a fridge, right? You had a, had a cold room or something. Thing. So the food, um, the attraction of the food, the attractiveness of the food itself was much less strong in the past. And now where the food is so attractive, we don't have the control mechanisms to, to protect it. What do you want to do practical? Well, I mean, a lot of things. Uh, reduce the attractiveness of the food, reduce availability of the food. Make sure that the people don't, that don't have enough money still get their food for a decent price. Um, I think everything that putting calorie numbers on the food is useful to not necessarily offering only um, cheeseburger but offer hamburger. So I negotiate myself at many hamburger places, I like hamburgers, to get a burger without cheese, right? And that cuts 50 calories or something. And, and in the long run, it helps. And uh, so, so I think it's, it's a really um, issue in which our modern life advances faster than our genes can follow. Our genes um, do not, have not built up a brain that is so much in control of the food intake that we need right now with the abundance of food. I think that's the main problem, and from that we can go into details, like making food less attractive. I'm not sure whether the packaging makes a big difference. It's a lot of things. But I, I, I'm sure, sure that writing calories on the food and putting colored labels on the food, how much good or bad, or so food, yellow, red, blue, or green, or whatever it is, that, I think that does a little bit of a job. It will surely help. It goes the right direction. Peter, do you think there are ways as individuals that we can use this to try to resist temptation? Or can we replace our bad habits with good ones? So, in a, some sense, this comes down partly to a battle between different systems, as, as we were talking about. So, for instance, the planning the day tour. So, you know, plan your long route around, not only to get the benefit of having to walk further, but also you're then not getting tempted by, your, by the green buns. And so, there certainly are things we can do. We can organise our cognition in such a way to do that, and we certainly have the capacity. Um, the trouble is that, of course, the advertising industry, for instance, is you know, designed to make that difficult for us. And that's, I think, the which think in a way we do know ourselves quite well so we know that we're likely to do that one of the things I do sometimes is if in, if you're in a hotel and they've got a basket that's a minibar thing is to I, I put it away in the wardrobe as soon as I get there because I know that later on when my resolve is weaker yes. then I will just want to eat so the things that are there but if I can't see it then I don't think of it so. yeah so commitment devices essentially that you're, you're, we're talking about or like binding ourselves to the moss but and indeed uh, Richard Thaler was won the Nobel Prize this, this year the Nobel Memorial Prize for economics this year you know, was interested in these nudges so things we can so small things we can we can do or governments can do to us to help us uh, do better behaviour in these sorts of circumstances so we can all learn these tactics the trouble is that we're sort of fighting the you know so then you know, you, you, we're fighting the other mechanisms which for instance if you get distracted you get tired you get stressed for instance which then then uh, uh, prevent those very mechanisms from working so well and so those are the circumstances of course in which you then 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 then, then defect the, the saying the saying is if you open a bag of chips you eat them all right. So don't open it, don't even look at it, put it somewhere else, <laughs> right? That's it, what Peter says. That's exactly right. If you're an alcoholic and, and you're done, you, you have your treatment, you start drinking a little bit of alcohol, 
take one glass and put the bottle back in the, in the cupboard, best in the next room, because the getting up and get, get the bottle and drink it is more complicated than having a bottle there and say, well, you know, another, today another one is not so bad, another glass is not so bad. These little, little things, they actually help us to have external control where we do not have enough internal control. So we can establish an external control by our own intention from which we then can benefit. That, I think that's the whole idea. Basically, we should put it into your minibar, and then it's far away from us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, there's a question I want to ask all three of you, which is, how are you going to spend your reward? How are you going to spend your prize money? Uh, Ray? Um, I'm going to hedge my bets. I've been asked this before, um, because I'm feeling very nervous about the direction the country is going in. Um, I think, uh, um, you know, the pound could collapse tomorrow, so I'm feeling very risk-averse. Um, so I'm just going to keep it in euros and see what happens. Oh, keep it in euros. Interesting. <laughs> in, in, in the next two years and see what, what happens, um, because uh, part of me feels we're heading towards catastrophe. Peter, what about you? So um, along with uh, dread of things that happen in the future, so you think about not things that happen in the future, you dread them. There's, a, there's the, the opposite for that, for reward. So the, the longer you wait before you spend it, in this case, the, the, the more you're going to enjoy the anticipation of the benefit <coughs> of spending it. So you should spend it uh, very late. So how long are you going to wait before you spend any of it? Well, good question. There are other factors which make you spend it early. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but those ones, we're going to put the money in your minibar to make it safe. <laughs> Wolfram, what are you going to do with yours? I spend it on family vacation. We had, a, we had several vacations. We're going to have more vacations. You spent it already? No, well, <laughs> not exactly everything. <laughs> no, 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 no. A little bit. I spend a little bit. And actually, I'm sorry to confess here, I keep the rest in euros, and I, I don't know what to do with the money. <laughs> I, 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 what what do you do? I don't, I don't have time for shopping, and I actually I hate shopping. Talk to my <laughs> wife. She's somewhere in the audience. It's a constant problem between the two of us. I can't go shopping. It's just so damn boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure someone will spend it for you. <laughs> no, no, that's not possible. No, 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 neither. <laughs> I want to throw things open to the uh, audience now. There are people with uh, roving mics. Please do make sure you wait for the mic to get near you. The lights are very bright, so I might rely on the people with um, roving mics to see where there are people with their hands up. And there is somebody coming. I think there are people upstairs, aren't there? Oh, yes. much better. But there is somebody coming up there too. So do put your hands up if you'd like to ask a question. Yes, thank you. Hi. Fantastic talk. Thank you so much. Um, Ray, question for you about age and risk-averse. Um, do you think it's that as you get older, you kind of have more experience, like the older, the wiser, uh, rather than just sort of going, not sure I'm going to do that. You kind of go, well, I tried that when I was younger, it didn't work, or I've got friends who tried it. So there's more experience that builds up as you get older, which naturally would make you more risk-averse. I think that's true, and that goes back to something Peter said as well, that it's useful when you're young to sort of have that dopamine boost to engage in exploration. You know the lay of the land and you can export it. But I think, you know, the world is very uncertain and as the sort of landscape um, changes, you need to be adaptive. And to be adaptive, you need to be able to explore and take risks. So in the experiment I described... Um, People, it, you know, have to make a choice between a certain and a gamble amount. And people who have a appetite for risk will make more money uh, at the end of the task. So 
in some way, it's counterproductive. Um, so I think it, it works if your environment doesn't change, but the world is changing all the time. Um, so, um, you know, if, if, if you lived on a desert island, it would be fine, I think. But in a, a society where things are changing so quickly, it may not be so fine. But whether you'll make more money does depend on the nature of the gamble, doesn't it? If you're putting it all on horses, then yeah. the chances yeah. are so the horses are going to win and not you. So we're talking about a gamble where you can work out the, the probabilities in an exact way. With horses, I, I'm not sure you can. Mm. Other questions? Yes, we have one over here. Hello. Um, I was just wondering what other tactics there are to help someone like myself. Who I was just doing a calculation as to how little dopamine I have in my brain. Uh, so is it, should I go for stem cells? Uh, should I go for the chocolate that Claudia's offered? Uh, should I learn a language? Uh, what, what, are, what are your recommend, other recommendations? This is to boost your dopamine. Well, I guess have lots of prediction errors, so have low expectation. So if you've got a low expectation... Get it working. Then... Um, and, you know, there is a saying, and I've, I've mentioned this before, when we actually received the, the Brain Prize, I think I alluded to it, and I had to give the after-dinner speech. Um, and because I was doing this in Copenhagen, in Denmark, I wanted to be kind to my hosts on our, our behalf. Um, but many of you will know that the Danes are considered the happiest society. They've been overtaken, I think, by the Norwegians, but they've held a, a first or second for a long period of time. And some economist has commented on this by saying the reason why the Danes are so happy is they start each year with low expectations. So <laughs> things can only be get, get better. So I would say keep your expectations low and modest, and that's the best thing available. Stem cells, I think it's probably too late for, for all of us here. Oh. <laughs> all of us, I said. One, one trouble with keeping your expectations low is that um, you have to then fool yourself into thinking that your expectations actually are lower than they really should be, because otherwise you're going to learn every year. So it's good actually not to learn in that case, um, otherwise you'll, you'll then learn correctly and then that will be a problem. Oh, that's true. You'll mark that up. Yes. Uh, where's the mic uh, now? Up there somewhere. So um, some people have mental health problems and they practice self-harm and it's apparently really addictive. Why is it so rewarding for people to hurt themselves. Ray, that sounds like one for you. Yeah, um, well, that's a real difficult question. Um, and you're right in, in, in one way in, in, in your description. So just for those who are not familiar with the scenario, um, this is particularly something that happens in adolescence, early adulthood, but can happen other times, where people will harm themselves, like cut themselves repeatedly, um, and the question is, why is that rewarding? And one of the reasons why it might be rewarding, and it's, some, it's a bit of uh, the reward story we didn't really touch on, is that relief can be rewarding. So if you think you know, something really terrible is going to happen and you avoid it, you've avoided something bad, nothing good has happened, but the avoidance and the relief associated with that. So people who cut themselves often describe that it gives them a relief from a terrible tension that precedes the cutting. And that's the rewarding uh, component of it. So it's, it, it's the rewards, if, if it is mediated by the reward system, it's a, 
mediated via this relief from another state of tension and anxiety. Uh, where's the mic now? There. Um, do you think that in today's uh, high technology world, where um, we really no longer have to wait for very much, uh, we can um, uh, we can actually send a message uh, across the other side of the world and get an instant reply. Uh, food is available 24-7. We don't uh, miss any TV programs because we can watch them on catch-up. <laughs> we are never frustrated on the whole. So would you think that obesity is part of this? Because food has been in abundance for a number of years, yet the only visual sign, I, I would say, has been particularly the last five years or so with an explosion in te technology. Would you say this is... Um, affecting the way our genes are being expressed, that we can't even bear hunger pangs anymore? That's a question. I'm, I'm not sure well, I understood yeah. everything. Haven't, haven't people always tried to avoid hunger pangs, though? Isn't it? Just, Hung it, hunger? Hunger pangs. So, so What's hunger pangs? The, uh, the pain of hunger. feeling hungry. Yeah. You know, well, well, we, I don't know. We well. can't resist that. <laughs> well, I, I can resist hunger. I, I just wait for half an hour or an hour, and it goes over. It, it's over sometimes. Not every day, but it, it, you can. the hunger comes and goes. And there are some people that just say, the hunger is always there. And these are the obese people. And, and, and we know that obesity reduces the uh, sensitivity of hormone receptors, of receptors for hormones that are released when the stomach is full and that stop, make you stop eating. If that receptor is desensitized, then the hormone will not work anymore. These people will feel hunger and they keep eating. And that is a real kind of a, a spiral. And that's a real problem. But do you think so, in modern life we've got so used to not waiting for anything that we just want all the food immediately as well? Yeah, I, I, th I think in general, yes. But I, I think as we are trying to... I mean, if you address a problem, you can usually solve it to some extent. Right? So if you focus on, on the hunger and you say, well, what are the possibilities to combat my hunger? One, two, three, four, five. One of them, the most simple one, is to wait a while and to see it goes over. Or I'm getting distracted. I'm in the afternoon in the laboratory or, or in, the, in the office, and by 4 o'clock I often get hungry. But I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm doing something interesting. I don't want to go and eat. Right? So, so I wait, and after half an hour I realize I'm no longer hungry. Other people may be still hungry, so there's no rule for everybody. And then maybe there's another option for these people, uh, to, to eat a bit more for lunch and then eat less in the evening. That's another possibility, because at lunch, when you eat, you metabolize what you're eating in the afternoon, whereas in the, at, at dinner, when you eat, you relax. You know, when I have my dinner, then I have... Another one of my marital problems is that I always want a dessert. Right? I eat nice, and the more I eat, the more of a dessert I want. I'm not eating like crazy. After an hour or so, I drink wine, and I drink more wine. I don't take the bottle away. I just keep drinking this wine. <laughs> and then I, I, I have a thing with my wife. So where's the dessert? And then she, well, I only have this or this or this. I said, well, let's start with this one, right? And then maybe we'll try the other one, you know? And then I keep eating, right? And if I don't do that, I'll, I'll take in a, a, a thousand calories less. And that will have an effect, right? So that's another problem, your eating habits. And you, as I say, try to address a problem. It's not one rule fix, 
it's fit for everybody, but uh, I think the hunger is one subjective thing you can try. And it's nice to be hungry sometimes when you think you want to lose weight, because then the hunger feeling has a reward, a positive connotation. It's kind of, ah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose some calories now because I'm hungry, right? <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, who's got the mic? Yes, there. Um, Ray, you hypothesized that uh, one of the things for lack of motivation in depression was due to a deficit in the goal-orientated dopamine system. How do we then explain um, the lack of motivation in schizophrenia associated with too much dopamine? Yeah, um, so I think th there's two sides to, to, to your question. The high over-supply sort of, or over-abundance of dopamine that is supposed to underpin schizophrenia is considered to give rise to, in the early phase of the condition, <coughs> to the hallucinations and delusions. But people have often used this phrase, and it's an old-fashioned phrase, burnt out condition, that that sort of very effusive condition changes over time and you shift from an over uh, profusion of dopamine to a, a lack of, a, a relative lack of dopamine. So the lack of motivation, the um, lack of any capacity for pleasure, etc., that you see in chronic phases of the disease may represent a dopaminergic system that is now under-functioning. Uh, so you don't see both together. The early phase is really characterized by a lot of excitement, a lot of uh, what are called positive symptoms. The other side is often referred to as negative symptoms. Yeah, maybe just a general comment in response to several of the questions. I mean, Ray alluded to that, or, or, or Peter also. Um, we assume that the dopamine system, to some extent, drives you towards consumption, or maybe other reward systems, but that you have control systems in your brain, like in the frontal cortex, that kind of um, tie it down, reduce it. And there are neurobiological um, data that, that show this. So you have a... Uh, between a, a pull towards the reward and a, pu and a, and a clamp down on, on, your, on your attraction to the, to the reward. And whatever we've discussed here, like with these things with the hunger or so, if you can intentionally increase the control, if you don't have enough brain control, you remove the attraction from the outside, right? So, so we, we have not developed enough control systems for hunger over the years because it was helpful to be obese. And, uh, but now we need to do it. So we cannot just change our brain within half a, uh, half a century or something where hunger seems to be getting less and less. So we need to build up, instead of our internal control system, which we do not have enough, obviously, for, for hunger, for, for food intake, we need to build up external constraints that take over the function of these control systems, that we don't need the control systems where we actually don't even have them, right? That's the idea, this, this idea of being attracted and being controlled in that attraction. And there's somebody up there with a the mic. Hi. Um, can we conclude that pessimists will always be happier than optimists? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. 
Peter. <laughs> Good question. So it depends on the source of the pessimism, pessimism, right? So Ray was essentially asking pessimists to fool themselves into being pessimistic, such that then when something nice, something neutral happens, then they then then they are uh, happier than otherwise. One trouble is that if you're pessimistic, then you have less reason to actually go and explore the world, for instance, and then find out there really are good things. So there's a big problem with being pessimistic, and that indeed may also relate to some of the issues that happen in depression as well, where net uh, predictions about future reward get to be uh, get to be lower, and that's one of the things that then stops you from going engaging with the world, stops you going from finding finding out what it's like. Indeed, one of the therapeutic mechanisms in one of the therapeutic approaches in depression is to is sort of behavioural activation therapy. So uh, encourage people to go out and act anyway in the world, even if they don't feel that they re they really want to, mm -hmm. and thereby discover the world that doesn't actually contain the the nasty things or contains more of the nice things than they expect than they originally expected. So pessimism is uh, good in some ways, but it's actually dangerous in other ways too. So mm -hmm. um, you have to be careful. Um, more questions. Who has the mic? Ah, oh, there. Hello there. I wonder if you could um, just um, explain to me, with regard to sort of the appetite for risk with dopamine, whether there's been any um, association with people's choices of careers, such as fighter pilot or um, war zone journalists. And then it also just made me wonder, I wonder if there's been any um, research done as to people in prisons, whether certain criminal activity um, is associated with the higher dopamine levels. Um, the, the short answer is I'm not aware of systematic research, but it's, it's a very interesting question of, as to why people are attracted to particular careers or why, you know, from my perspective, why somebody would want to go into the SAS or the parachute regiment or whatever where one imagines high risk. But, you know, for me, um, I wouldn't even be a pilot because I think, you know, there's... <laughs> Too high risk, um, though I dri do drive a car occasionally, um, <laughs> which is more risky. Um, but it, it, it is interesting, um, you know, whether appetite for risk does determine people's uh, career. Um, I've said to uh, Wolfram at the beginning of this that I I'm sort of very risk averse now, but at one level I'm not because. Uh, I'm a scientist, an academic, and that's rather risky. It's a risky business, I would say. You have to sort of uh, live on continuous cycles of five-year grants and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not, a, it's not a safe job like working in a bank or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> working in a bank used to be, <laughs> should I say. Um, but it's, it is, there's very little research on, on that, but I think it is really interesting. And do forgive me, may I just ask, is there any research on dopamine and Alzheimer's when you were referring to the ability to learn? And dopamine and, dopamine al and Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. <laughs> There's a lot of research on Alzheimer's which shows that, although it's usually affiliated with loss of the cholinergic system, another neurotransmitter, in fact, in Alzheimer's disease, there is a global loss, probably, of all neurotransmitters. But the one that has had most of the headline uh, is acetylcholine, partly because that's involved in memory consolidation, as is dopamine, but replace uh, treatments that try to uh, rescue the cognitive decline in Alzheimer's have focused largely around the cholinergic system. But all of these neuromodulatory systems are impaired in Alzheimer's. The one that tends to get the attention is the headline one, um, but it, it's a global disease of the brain. 
who who has a mic somewhere? Hi. Um, oh, just there. Um, sorry. Um, it's another dopamine question. Um, I was just sort of wondering, with the lower levels of dopamine in older ages, why then is there the midlife crisis of people engaging with really risky behaviour? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that Peter. is a very good question. <laughs> so we're talking about wild speculation here, but maybe uh, your dopamine levels are going down, so you need to have a bigger reward for yourself, and so that, uh, that large motorcycle maybe uh, is the large reward necessary at that particular point in time. Then you need an even bigger reward when you were 80, though. Then you need an even bigger motorbike. Then. Well, then there's an interesting issue about how fast these things are going and changing, exactly. So the, yeah. But then your capacity to drive that motorbike has gone down at 80. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, I want to ask all, all three of you a final question, which is, uh, apart from spending or hoarding your prize money, uh, what are you <laughs> going to do next, uh, research-wise, Ray? Well, over the last 15 years, I've been working on what one might call sort of ba more basic research, but I've become much more interested in taking all this back to the arena of psychiatry because I think there are a lot of insights from what's come out of this field in relation to behavior, behavior control, control of mood, that is likely to be important in providing us with a much more systematic way of studying psychiatry and parsing up the field in more meaningful ways. As Peter has already alluded to, um, there's been a habit, and this is perfectly understandable when we didn't understand the field very well, of lumping conditions together that are probably heterogeneous. The approaches we've developed might enable us to sort of uh, have a more refined take on these conditions. So over the next 10 years, I'm going to focus more and more my research on studying psychiatric conditions like OCD, depression and the like. Peter. So, so I'm actually collaborating with Ray on exactly the same questions as well. So one other issue that I'm very interested in is um, goes under the sort of general name of metacognition. So the question is, how is it that we learn about how to control these systems to make them operate in a, uh, the best way they possibly can? So how do we optimise our own optimization, our own optimizer? And so there are lots of issues that come up with that, how we deploy the resources we have, like our memories, our attention, and so forth. And those are probably... Um, susceptible to the same sorts of mechanisms that we use about making actions in the external world, we make actions in the internal world for that. And so we're very <coughs> interested in understanding how we can sort of turn, our, turn these algorithms in and on themselves, if you like, and then optimise the way they work. So about the way we can think about the way we think. Exactly, like. yes. Wolfram. Um, well, I, I want, I'm, I'm actually making right now the step from the biological rewards that are necessary for survival, like what we've been discussing all the time, to um, economic goods that one trades in order to enhance the welfare. So when you are the ancient farmer and you go to the market with uh, uh, many bushels of wheat, um, then you want to trade in some of the wheat um, against uh, meat because you want to have a richer diet. And that's where the reward field, the biological reward turns into tradable economic goods. So what I'm doing is I'm studying economic theory that comes out from, well, famous people like Stieglitz and um, von Neumann Morgenstern's utility axioms and things like this, and then uh, study how in, in animals the reward neurons are actually involved in these economic trading, and it's absolutely wonderful to see that this seems to be the same thing for the neurons, right? You, you have the goods um, that the, the, uh, the animal takes, a, takes let's say, in the human example, give me more meat 
and less cheese on the hamburger. So I'm trading in a bit of cheese for getting a bit more meat because I don't like the cheese and I like the hamburger. If you do that um, with the offering the animals different things, it, it works in a very nice way, in a very systematic way, and we can find uh, basically in the brain the foundations of economic trading behavior, which is a field that's called neuroeconomics, and, uh, and uh, the, the theory is there. We just need to kind of apply it to our knowledge about neurons, and the neurons um, seem to work quite well with this... Uh, with these theories. Well, I, for one, can't wait to see what you discover next. Thanks to Professors Wolfram Schultz, Peter Dayen, and Ray Dolan, and congratulations again on your prize, and thanks, too, to the audience here at the Royal Institution. <laughs>